Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the policies, technologies, and collective action needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to talk about the Open Air Carbon Removal Challenge. It's a worldwide challenge for students to create new processes, approaches, and prototypes to remove carbon from the land, waters, or air. Student teams will design and build creative solutions to the carbon pollution problem. The very best approaches will be selected as finalists for an in-person showcase at the Carbon Unbound Conference in May 2024. Finalists will receive travel stipends, lodging, and per diems for a free trip to New York City to present their submissions to the leaders of the carbon removal industry, where they'll have a chance to meet mentors, funders, and employers. The deadline to apply to be part of the challenge is January 15th, so get those applications in soon. You can learn more at openaircollective.com. Okay, on to the show. Today's guest is here to talk about the potential of an emerging carbon removal technology to help decarbonize the mining sector. The mining industry is going to play a really central role in the energy transition. And it's critical that this sector transforms to meet this challenge in a net zero fashion. Carbon removal or CDR technologies can help pave the way towards net zero and even net negative mining. And the startup we'll hear from today will talk about the technologies they're developing, as well as the partnerships and policies that are needed to help create a gigaton scale carbon removal industry by leveraging an existing gigaton scale mining industry. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. Okay, let's get started. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Paul Needham. Paul is a multi-time company founder and CEO with three exits. Paul serves as board member to a venture fund that invests in African clean energy entrepreneurs and is senior advisor to the DREC organization, which is accelerating investment in clean energy in developing countries. Paul co-founded, built, and sold India's largest rooftop solar leasing company, providing access to clean energy to at least 250,000 people in rural India. Paul has a master's degree in development economics from the University of Cambridge and is now CEO of Arca, the carbon mineralization company. Arca is working to stop and reverse climate change by capturing carbon dioxide from the air and transforming it into rock where it is safely stored forever. Co-founded by Professor Greg Dippel and other geoscientists from the University of British Columbia, my alma mater, Arca has developed technologies that accelerate a natural geochemical process called carbon mineralization. Arca works with producers of critical metals such as nickel, repurposing mine waste to deploy industrial scale carbon dioxide removal or CDR solutions. Arca just announced a partnership with BHP, one of the world's largest producers of nickel for the EV industry, to launch the world's first accelerated carbon mineralization project at an active nickel mine in Western Australia. The company's technology has been recognized with a $1 million XPRIZE milestone award for carbon dioxide removal. Paul, welcome to the show. Well, Naeem, thank you very much for inviting me to join you here today. We're thrilled to have you on and thrilled to talk about ARCA and all of the really great progress your team seems to be making in recent months. But before we get into any of that, you come from a long career in, in energy, which we touched on at the introduction here. But can you tell us a, a bit more about your path into carbon removal? Yes. Well, I've also just come back from a very long flight from Perth, Australia, where our team is now deployed um, on the world's first accelerated carbon mineralization project at an active mine site with our partner, BHP. I guess we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. 
But yes, my journey into carbon removal started about 15 years ago when I left my job at Microsoft to focus on the problem of expanding access to clean energy in developing countries on accelerating a just energy transition. I co-founded and led a solar energy company in India that provided affordable solar home energy solutions to farmers and shopkeepers in rural villages. Living in India and working across rural India, I was struck by the fact that it's the people who are least responsible for the climate crisis that are the most vulnerable to the worst impacts of climate change. And I'll always remember one of our new customers from a small village in Uttar Pradesh, India, a father of three who had lost his wife a couple of years earlier. Um, when their youngest child was just two years old, the mother went into the kitchen at night to find some milk for the child. And without electricity, it was very dark. So she was finding her way. And when she reached for the milk container, she felt a sharp bite on her wrist. So she'd been struck by a snake, a venomous snake. And the nearest hospital or clinic was so many miles away, they were unable to get her help in time. So the father of three said to our team, he said, if you'd been here two years ago with your solar lights, my children would still have their mother. And with that experience, I was seized with the fact that poverty is always intertwined with extreme vulnerability. For tens of millions of people around the world, the climate crisis is now and the situation's getting worse. So yes, we need to work with urgency. We need to accelerate the deployment of solutions that can reduce emissions today, but even that is not enough. We also need to take responsibility for historic emissions and restore the atmosphere to proper balance. So that's, that's why I'm inspired to work on carbon removal. Yeah, I, I think that's such an inspiring story. And it's one that feels familiar in a, in a sense that you just get this impression or, you know, the reasons that I got into carbon removal, that, that real sense of inequity of how much of the burden of climate change is already felt and how we sort of talk about climate change as this kind of future problem. I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's a problem today that's impacting the folks who've done the least to cause it the most right now. And that point around then the important consideration of historical emissions becomes an issue around equity. And that's, that's an important point that you bring up. So tell us a little bit about ARCA's history and founding and how did it go from its uh, academic roots at the University of British Columbia to become a, a CDR-focused company? ARCA was co-founded by three geoscientists from the University of British Columbia, Professor Greg Dippel, Bethany Ladd, and Dr. Peter Sherman. So as geochemists, geologists, hydrogeologists, they already understood that 99% of all the carbon on planet Earth is actually contained underground, primarily in rocks and sediments. The Earth, naturally, geologically, is storing about 1.9 billion billion tons of carbon. So less than 1% of the planet's carbon is above the ground in our oceans, our atmosphere, biosphere, etc. Less well-known is the fact that there's also a natural flux, a two-directional movement of carbon from the geological system to the biological system, from the long-term system to the short-term system. And we know that volcanoes, for example, release carbon into the atmosphere, but certain kinds of rocks also capture carbon dioxide through a process called carbon mineralization, the natural geochemical process by which carbon dioxide from the air chemically reacts with certain minerals at the Earth's surface to form new carbonate minerals. So naturally, these chemical reactions are very, very slow. 
but over millions of years, carbon mineralization has been drawing down CO2 from the atmosphere, helping to cool the planet. So for more than 25 years, Greg has been studying carbon mineralization, publishing academic papers that examine, expose the reaction kinetics of the, uh, these underlying chemical reactions. And for just over a decade, Greg's research has focused on exploring opportunities to accelerate, to radically accelerate carbon mineralization. So it turns out that certain critical metals like nickel are often hosted in the right kind of rock, ultramafic rock, rock that's rich in magnesium. And working at the University of British Columbia, the team developed new technologies, novel approaches to measure and then accelerate carbon mineralization. They partnered with nickel producers, uh, mining companies, conducted a number of field studies at, at uh, legacy mines, at closed mines, and to experiment with some of these ideas and to learn more about how the mine waste could be leveraged for industrial scale carbon removal. Um, the team invented some new IP, invented new ways to actually see carbon dioxide moving from the air to the ground. And perhaps more impressively, invented new ways to transform specific minerals to radically accelerate this natural geochemical process. So with, a, with an exclusive license to commercialize these technologies that had been developed at UBC, the company was formed in 2021. I joined as CEO in 2022. We're now a team of 20 people, mostly geologists and geochemists. And uh, of course, we're moving now from the lab out into the real world with some, uh, with some deployments. That's a really exciting story. And this technology is really fascinating. It's connected and anchored in an important way to the mining industry and this kind mm -hmm. of energy transition that we're going to. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenge and the paradox presented by the energy transition that we're currently going through, particularly related to critical metals? And, and maybe give mm -hmm. us an idea of the scale of growth and demand for this energy transition. The world must rapidly decarbonize our energy systems. Global emissions, you know this better than anyone, must be cut in half by 2030, half again by 2050. So we need to phase out fossil fuels and dramatically increase investments in clean, renewable energy generation, transmission, storage, and use. Um, Saul Griffith so powerfully pointed out that we must electrify everything. So embedded in that energy transition is therefore an uncomfortable reality. We need to actually increase production of critical metals, such as lithium, copper, nickel, cobalt. The energy transition requires more mining, not less. And mining itself is very energy intensive and historically very carbon intensive. The International Energy Agency estimates that annual production of lithium will need to increase by 13 to 42 times by 2040. Annual nickel production will need to be six to 19 times greater by 2040 than it was in 2020. Um, battery related minerals also include graphite, cobalt, manganese, production of which must increase between six to 25 times annual production levels by 2040. So how can we kick fossil fuels transition to clean energy while also decarbonizing the production of critical metals and minerals that we all need. That's the clean energy paradox. And our contribution, well, let's transform the mine waste into a massive carbon sink because the future of mining needs to be carbon negative. 
That's very, very cool. I think we don't fully appreciate the role that mining a lot of these different metals and minerals, materials are going to be necessary in order to realize a fully decarbonized future. And to reduce the uh, dependence on fossil fuels is going to require a lot more uh, a lot more mining from, as you mentioned, an energy-intensive and carbon-intensive industry. And I love stories about how we can attach carbon removal technologies to specific industrial sectors and how it can solve some of the carbon challenges that those sectors have uh, through integrating carbon removal as part of the value chain. I think that's a really important point that people miss. I think folks think about carbon removal and they're they're thinking about giant fans in the middle of nowhere uh, that are mm. sucking up air. But there are some very, very interesting and well-integrated opportunities to build carbon removal into uh, existing sectors. So I, I, I love hearing stories about this. So maybe tell us a bit more about ARCA's approach to CDR and, and give us, I guess, a quick overview of, of the geochemical science behind it. Sure. Well, our, our mission, of course, is to restore the atmosphere by capturing atmospheric CO2 and transforming it into rock where it's safely stored forever. And the geochemistry is really interesting. I, I alluded to it uh, moments ago. So we're working with ultramafic rock, which is rock that's composed of magnesium-rich minerals. And actually, I have in my hand here a very special ultramafic rock. This, this rock is serpentinite. It's composed primarily of a collection of minerals called serpentine minerals with names like lizardite, chrysotile, and tigerite. All of these minerals contain magnesium, a me metallic element. And under the right conditions, the magnesium ions can leach from the rock, bind with carbon dioxide from the air, and form new magnesium carbonate minerals. So this rock in my hand can create more rock by taking CO2 molecules from the air and integrating them into new solid minerals. This one kilogram of rock has the capacity to restore the atmosphere in a large auditorium to pre-industrial levels of CO2. Just one kilogram has the potential to reverse 200 years of industrial pollution in a room of that size. But of course, the reality is this type of rock is typically buried deep in the ground, so it's not exposed to air and it's not captured any CO2. And even if you take this rock and put it out into the open air, it would take millions of years to weather, to erode, to react. So that's not much use on its own. So at ARCA, we have technology that gives these rocks superpowers. So one of our technologies uses high intensity bursts of electromagnetic energy. We target specific minerals found in these rocks, disrupt the mineral lattice structure, which liberates the magnesium so it becomes more reactive to CO2. That's really, that's really helpful to understand, and, and as, as well as the potential scale and timeframes that we're talking about that you are able to help accelerate through your technology. So maybe going back to your point on critical minerals, how does ARCA's CDR method help decarbonize mining specifically? Well, to capture gigatons of carbon dioxide, you need gigatons of ultramafic rock, and there's very few industries in the world that move gigatons of anything. Mining is one of the very few industries that actually handles billions of tons of material a year. So where do you find gigatons of ultramafic rock? Well, it turns out that certain critical metals like nickel are often hosted in ultramafic rock. When you think about a nickel mine, 
Um, a good nickel mine these days might be 1% nickel, which means that 99% of what they blast and crush and grind and process is not nickel. It ends up being the waste material, the mine tailings, all of that leftover material is the mine waste. So we partner with producers of critical metals and transform their mine waste into a massive carbon sink. So we estimate that there are already nearly 200 gigatons of suitable mine waste on the surface of the earth, left over from historical mining of nickel, chromite, some other metals and minerals. With our technologies and processes in the lab, we've been able to achieve nearly 20% CO2 saturation in materials such as this. So if we can scale this up, just the historical mine waste represents an opportunity to capture and permanently store 40 gigatons of carbon dioxide. So we believe that the mines of the future will contribute to decarbonization by mining the ground for critical metals and minerals and mining the air for carbon dioxide. What does the actual process of partnering with mining companies look like? So this is our value proposition for the mining companies. We're going to help you measure, maximize, and ultimately monetize the carbon mineralization potential of your mine waste. So an engagement with a mining company usually starts with some analytical work. We take a look at the mineralogy of their ore and of their mine waste, and we build a model that helps us estimate potential for carbon mineralization. This doesn't work at every mine. It doesn't even work at every nickel mine. We're looking for the presence of certain minerals. And these are minerals that the mining companies are not looking for because up until now, they've had no commercial value. So people don't know if these minerals are present in their mine waste. And if they are, how reactive they are. So that's the first step is um, helping, this helps us determine which of our technologies and processes would be best suited for that particular mine if we can work with them at all. But if the mineralogy is promising, then we start scoping out a deployment opportunity. Our goal, of course, is to get out onto that site, work with their mine waste. And the goal, of course, is industrial scale carbon removal. Um, in practice, these relationships do take time to develop, especially with the very large mining companies. Those are where the biggest opportunities are too. So we invest in, in building those relationships. Um, operating mines are complex and difficult. You know, we need to integrate with what's happening there. There's a lot of health and safety considerations when you're working on mine waste and when you're working at an active mine, a lot of moving equipment. So it does take time to build that relationship and to get out. And, and, and then, of course, it starts with a pilot project. So we have a portfolio of technologies, some of which are ready to deploy today, some of which are still in the lab and at prototype scale. So um, today we're bringing technologies to our, our first partner, uh, BHP, that are ready to roll. They're at a TRL 7, TRL 9. And, um, but we've got other technologies that we'll be bringing out as they move from sort of prototype stage to uh, pilot ready. Can you double click a little bit more on the, I guess the strategic benefits for a mining company that probably has their own decarbonization or potentially net zero goals. Um, how does ARCA fit into their strategy? Well, we're working with mining companies that have a declared net zero goal and some sort of plan to get there. Um, so we've heard uh, you may have heard that we just announced this partnership with BHP, one of the world's largest producers of nickel for the electric vehicle industry. So under this collaboration, we're now deploying at their Mount Keith nickel mine in Western Australia. This will be the world's first 
accelerated carbon mineralization deployment at an active mine site. Our team's there now. And the first phase of work really involves assessing the site and establishing the baseline. Again, this material, because it's been finely crushed through the mining process into a fine powder, very fine grains, it's already capturing CO2. Naturally, you could say. So that's what's happening naturally. We have to understand what's happening uh, and the baseline. And then of course we get busy accelerating. That. Generally, our mining partners would like to lead the world towards decarbonization and ultimately support the production of carbon negative nickel and other metals for the energy transition. We hear from the mining companies that they're hearing directly from their customers, such as EV battery manufacturers, that the market wants low carbon or no carbon metals and minerals. So in addition to BHP, we're also working with Vale, Talon Metals, Blackstone Minerals, IGO, Poseidon Nickel, and some others. Uh, I think we've got a pipeline now of six more mining companies where we're beginning the analytical services work, but there's been nothing announced about those yet. I think that's super important. I want to emphasize that again. I think what you said is really powerful. So in order to make this transition to EVs, those manufacturers are depending on the inputs that they use to be as low carbon as possible because you're trying to build a low carbon industry yourself. And so the mining companies are therefore incentivized to find ways to drive down the carbon intensity of their processes and technologies like the one that you're developing at ARCA fit into that strategic objective to get that done. Is that, is that right? That's absolutely right. Tesla famously has been outgoing directly to the mining companies, trying to secure long-term supply of nickel under the condition that it can be mined sustainably. So we need to look into the letter of those agreements, but clearly getting to net zero nickel is an important part of uh, sustainable mining. Um, talking to the, the, some of the major mining companies, we hear that Tesla is not the only EV company that's coming to their door. And think about it, an electric vehicle company going directly to the mining company to source. Like, I don't know how many steps of disintermediation is happening there, um, but it's, uh, there is increasing demand. Supply takes a lot of time to build. These are massive multi-billion dollar projects, of course. So it's very interesting now that yes, you know, consumer pressure, I mean, it, it really comes down to the customer value proposition of an electric vehicle right? You're choosing an electric vehicle, not only because it performs much better, but also because of the impact on the environment. And so, yes, the manufacturers are looking at their scope three emissions or the emissions embedded in their supply chain. And the mining companies are hearing that. It's really interesting to see that integration across the value chain. I, um, I'd love to hear more about this BHP partnership. That's a massive global mining company, as you mentioned, especially around nickel and some of these metals that are, are going to be critical to this clean energy transition. Tell us more about that collaboration and, and the work that you're doing. Well, it's a fantastic opportunity. This is a, a very important nickel mine. This is the Mount Keith mine in Western Australia. Uh, they've been mining nickel there for 25 plus years. The mine tailing storage facility contains over 400 million tons of mine waste. 
it's a flat landscape and you can see the mine tailing storage facility from space. It's about 16 square kilometers, four kilometers across. Um, it's a big flat pancake, probably 10 meters deep. Um, and there, there's much more life to that mine left. It will continue to be a very important producer of class one nickel for the EV industry and important therefore for the energy transition. And we're starting with a pilot project on a small subplot within that mine tailing storage facility. And we're bringing some of the technologies that are ready to roll today. Technologies such as technologies for monitoring and verification and technologies to accelerate. So we have these autonomous um, amphibious rovers that can move over the muddy mine tailings and churn up the material. This helps us control the water content, control alkalinity by pulling up moisture from below. And of course, as you can imagine, as you churn, you're increasing the surface area as well. So you're increasing the contact area with the air. And um, we've learned that it isn't enough just to churn and plow back and forth. You need to be aware of the rate of CO2 flux in real time. There's a lot of variability in the surface and even in the mineralogy there. So you need to direct your churning activities to the right places at the right time to not waste energy and to have the greatest effect. So that's what we're doing, smart churning, which involves the, the autonomous rovers and in the monitoring and verification technologies that we've developed. This project was partially funded by a fantastic organization out of British Columbia here called CICE, C-I-C-E. It stands for the Center for Innovation and Clean Energy. It's a government-backed nonprofit organization that provides innovators faster, easier access to early stage funding and community partnerships. So they're quite an active supporter of the British Columbia carbon management system. So they provided grant support to help us get this project off the ground. And uh, yeah, just enormously helpful. That's a really very cool partnership. I feel like there's a, a lot of valuable learning that's going to be done through that. I see also huge potential to scale just given the magnitude of the potential operation just at that mine site alone. Uh, we've had an opportunity to to meet with SICE in, in Vancouver recently mm -hmm. and really, um, really impressed with the model that they've built out there and certainly one that we'd love to see replicated across Canada and around the world is one that makes those, those sorts of funds available quickly so that um, companies like yours can move quickly and move with that sense of urgency in getting these new pilot projects off the ground and eventually a scale at a commercial level soon thereafter. And so that can be really, really catalytic. You mentioned that there were additional kind of technologies that are in development that could help with these processes around measurement uh, and verification, as well as the acceleration of, of this smart churning that's happening that is so critical to accelerating the process that we're talking about. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of the uh, technology advancements that you all are kind of making in, in the lab over in Vancouver? Oh, yeah. Well, our team has developed the ability to actually see carbon dioxide moving from the air into the ground in real time. Well, not with our eyes, but with our instruments, of course. So we're using some off-the-shelf technologies and integrating them in some very new ways. And we've built a reactive transport model that helps us um, connect data that we're getting from different kinds of sensors. Um, if anyone listening is in soil sciences, you might be familiar with some of these instruments, like a dynamic closed chamber 
or eddy covariance towers. Eddy covariance towers are, are really interesting. They're sort of very fancy weather stations. And we measure the concentration of CO2 in the air at one or more elevations above the ground. And we're measuring three-dimensional wind speed at one or two or more elevations above the ground. And with that, you can, because air moves in eddies and it's swirling around, you can mathematically calculate the negative flux of CO2, the movement of CO2. And it depends on wind direction and wind speed, but you can build up a heat map that shows you where CO2 is moving and how quickly. We've discovered that mine tailings breathe. At certain times of the day, they release CO2. Other times of the day, they absorb CO2. So you need to measure the net loss of CO2 from the air into the ground. And the eddy covariance tower is one instrument that we use. We use dynamic closed chambers, which is another instrument. Um, with this instrument, you create a closed pocket of air above the material, and then you measure the concentration of CO2 in that closed pocket of air over a period of time. And in five minutes, in a, in a three liter pocket of air, in five minutes, you can detect a change from 420 parts per million down to 250 parts per million. It's incredible how quickly this material, when, when treated, captures CO2. Um, and then, of course, you want to know not just the loss of CO2 from the air above the ground, you want to make sure that's been gained in mineral form in the material itself. So we take samples of the material and we look for the total inorganic carbon content of that material. And we do baselines before the work starts. We, we find a representative area, which is a continuous baseline, uh, synchronous. So we don't treat that area. And then we, of course, measure the rate of loss of CO2, the rate of gain of CO2 in the minerals. And um, yeah, we've developed models that connect readings from all of these instruments to help us understand what's happening. And that net between the baseline and your intervention is then the you know potential ability to monetize the carbon removal of that process, as you mentioned earlier. So these instruments that you are building are so foundational to your actual business model. Yeah, and foundational to the development of a methodology that can be um, widely accepted. So we've been doing a lot of work on developing a methodology for carbon mineralization in the context of, of uh, mine waste. Uh, we'll be putting this methodology out for public comment and review. It's our gift to the world. We want to accelerate, uh, accelerate uh, the progress here. Um, of course, much of it is based on the decades of research that Greg and his colleagues have done at the CarbMin Research Lab at the University of British Columbia. So there's a lot of published work that we can, that we can build on. Um, but yes, we've developed some very new ways to accelerate the measurement and give us this real-time view. I want to shift over a little bit to an area that I think is, is really important around scaling carbon removal, and I think many others do too. And I just want to ask you about maybe some of the current regulatory challenges that you're facing in scaling up your technology. And what does smartly designed policy support look like in order for a company like yours to succeed? Well, I think we're not seeing any regulatory challenges to scaling up right now. However, there are ways in which governments around the world could better support the development and accelerated deployment of carbon dioxide removal solutions such as ours. 
So first of all, policies and funding programs need to be technology agnostic, right? I think we, we should focus instead on what really matters, the durability, the measurability, and of course, the safety, thinking about the unintended consequences of, of your intervention. Secondly, governments should focus on stimulating market demand. This could be done through carbon pricing that reflects the true social cost of carbon dioxide pollution. Could be tax credits or direct procurements. So there's different tools that could be done there, used there. And third, governments everywhere, and in Canada in particular, have an opportunity to establish leadership by incentivizing R&D investment into CDR. This could be done with R&D grants, loan guarantees, or the creation of CDR hubs, as we're seeing in the States. These can attract the most promising technologies for larger scale deployment. So yeah, I think there are a number of tools that have been um, tested and tried in other markets. And of course, organizations like Carbon Removal Canada is helping us understand what these opportunities are and what, which can be the most impactful interventions uh, that governments can make. Yeah, well, I think you just outlined you know, the top three, you know, and we want to get really focused on what it's going to take. It's, it's creating mm -hmm. that demand signal. It's uh, accelerating that technology supply through R&D and demonstrations. And then it's enabling rapid and responsible deployment. And I think that's um, really about how do, we, how do we create smart regulations that enable companies like yours to get projects off the ground more quickly. And I think all of that is going to play an important role in in creating the potential leadership position for other countries. And I, I would say that your point around uh, being kind of technology agnostic, if you will, or technology inclusive is super important is that mm. we focus on the standards that we wanna see um, and, and key metrics around performance on durability and measurability and all these things. That's more important than a specific technology. And I think we've seen in the United States a real, a real bet on direct air capture. And so what we see as a really exciting opening, as much as I love direct air capture, is there's a real opening for countries like Canada and others to, to take a more technology agnostic approach and see where we can accelerate technology advancement and scale up of new companies and carbon removal solutions outside of direct air capture that can create that leadership potential. So that's something that we definitely would agree on and that need for technology agnostic uh, policy support. Well, we're really thrilled to be able to, to have you know, ARCA, a Canadian company, and, and it feels like there's so much happening in this space. What's next for ARCA and how can people learn more about you? Naeem, our top priority right now is to get out there, capture tons of CO2, demonstrate this can be done at an active mine site. So we're going live now with BHP at the Mount Keith Nickel Mine. It's really an exciting opportunity. That one site has an opportunity for megaton scale carbon dioxide removal. So we want to execute that well and demonstrate to the world the industrial scale opportunity of accelerated carbon mineralization in the context of critical metal mining. While we're growing our team, uh, we're recruiting engineers, project managers, geoscientists, and more. So please check out our website. If you don't see exactly the right role for you today, but you desperately want to work with ARCA and want to work on carbon removal, then we have another category, which is a climate champion category. You can apply for that, get your cover letter in so we can get to know you and have a chat. We've got a new people page on our website, which uh, uh, tells you a bit more about what it's like to work in carbon removal and what it's like to work with us at ARCA. So yeah, check out our website 
at uh, arcaclimate.com and of course our socials mostly linkedin fantastic and i i think there'll be a lot of folks that'll be excited about uh, the general application or the specific specialized opportunities that are at arca it's great to see uh, new carbon removal companies starting up and creating new jobs uh, in this field. And we can bring a whole new generation of people uh, into the carbon removal world thanks to the great work that you're doing. Thanks so much, Paul. I really appreciate the time. Oh, Naeem, thank you very much for the opportunity to tell you about what we're working on and to share the story of our journey so far. 